Welcome to the Conlangry Podcast, a podcast about constructing languages and the people who create them. I'm George Corley, and from Maryland, my lovely co-host, Bianca Mangum. <laughs> um, hello. Sorry, you got me right when I was drinking water. At least this time it was water. Most of the time it's not. <laughs> and in the great state of Wisconsin, we have William Annis. Hello. Back again. We can't get rid of him. He loves us. I want to get through this episode real quick. So we're just going to jump right into the main topic. And this is one that William suggested to me is linguistic typology. So there's many kinds of languages and many features that seem to go together. The study of these things make up linguistic typology and uh, linguistic universals. Conlangers... I think should probably familiarize themselves to these things at least to some extent for no other reason I think than to know when we're breaking rules or what rules we we can are actually being broken rather than just stuff that actually exists though. <laughs> so anyway, I'll turn this over to you Will what do you, what are your thoughts on this stuff? Well, for people who are interested in creating naturalistic conlines, definitely I feel those people should be looking at linguistic typology so that they know when they break the rules and they know how often those rules can be broken. So we talk about typology or even worse, linguistic universals. And the problem with this is there is no such thing as a linguistic universal. What we have is universal linguistic tendencies. So typically uh, in, in typology, a universal is expressed statistically. One of the, the most basic distinctions is in your fundamental word order. Is it, you know, VSO or is it SOV? And it turns out if you've decided to go with the verb final language, all sorts of Habits follow from that in languages all over the planet. So if your default sentence structure ends, your, your default clause ends in a verb, then you are very, very likely to have a language that's going to use postpositions instead of prepositions. The genitive is usually going to come first. If you use auxiliary verbs, they're going to come after the main verb, and your relative clauses normally come first. You can always find languages that break these rules, but if you're going to break the rule, you'd better understand why you're doing it. And so, even better, put it to good use. What does that mean? Yeah. yeah. What I, do you mean when you say put it to good use? Like, you know, if you decide you want to change something around from the normal, maybe instead of going, you know, maybe I'll do this always, maybe just switching it from being after to before, maybe will be emphasis because it is so outside of sure. the natural. To sure. make it not just to be different put a meaning behind the difference. Right, yeah. exactly. And, Will, you made a very good point in these are statistical probabilities. One recurring theme that we have on this podcast and in the community in general is whatever weird thing you come up with, if it's something that's not weird enough that a human can't actually learn how to do it, it probably exists in a 
language, a human language somewhere. Somewhere, that's exactly right. Indeed. I think there are two magnificent resources, free resources available on the web for people who are interested in learning about what's common, what's not common, what sort of features tend to travel together. Um, there's the typology database at a, at a university in Germany, and there's the World Atlas of Language Structures, WALS.info. And both of these, yeah, walls, just have such magnificent things. And they, they really, especially the, 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 the database, has some magnificently weird and fussy little rules. <laughs> One of my favorites is Rule 798. And that says, if a language has tense, its adjectives will be more noun-like than verb-like. Mm. How, how does that happen? Intriguing. Isn't that interesting? I mean, you wouldn't normally necessarily think of those things going together, and yet somehow, if the language has tense instead of aspect or whatever, then it's more likely to have kind of nouny adjectives than verby adjectives. What does that exactly mean? Um, so... In most Indo-European languages, adjectives are, I think all Indo-European languages, adjectives are very nouny. They may get marked the same way as nouns. They might be usable in place of nouns. Oh, I see. Right. Whereas in some other languages, I know in Chinese, uh, adjectives can all often be used as verbs. And in some languages, you have no choice. They're not used as verbs. They are verbs. And that, so that you cannot say the blue dog. You have to say the dog who is bluing. Oh, yeah. Right, we don't have a simple... In many of these languages, we don't have a simple... The state of the adjective thing. Yes, right, right. So what if you have tense and aspect? That's a really interesting question, and I I mean, (laughs) there are 2,000-plus elements in this database, and I did not get through all of them, but that was one that struck out as being really, really interesting to me. You should have been more thorough with your research. (laughs) (laughs) I think one... That I saw once that really caught my eye. I don't know what number this is, actually. I should have looked it up, but there's an order to what colors a language has. Right. Depending on whether it has two, three, or more colors. And I think the order goes with if it has two colors, it'll have black and white, of course. Mm -hmm. And then if it has a third color, it'll go red. And I think it goes blue after that. Blue green. Is that the blue green thing? Yeah, probably. Yeah. You're not always going to blue as separate. Which is kind of weird. I think definitely English bias. But for me, for blue and green to be the same thing, I'm like, no way. They are way different to me. (laughs) And it's nothing perceptual, of course. It's just I'm so used to knowing them as different things that it's weird for me. Yeah, I... I find I think of blue and green very, very differently, but I can kind of see how. I can kind of see it. It's not like insane, but I'm, it's the same way that I don't like fingers and toes being the same thing, even though clearly it makes sense. I, it makes a lot more sense to me for orange to be not its own color, to be, for it to be a split between red and yellow. And I think orange is it's pretty late. one of the last ones. Yeah, late orange is. There's not much to relate orange to. So this is one of the big controversies 
in the Navi language community was getting a proposal to Paul Fromer for color words. Oh, my God. That was a huge discussion. Huge discussion. Why don't you just keep it open-ended? What colors do they have? Yeah, well, there's, there's, I mean, there's a whole <laughs> questions that go around this, but there, well, you know, some people were like, let's just go with a very simple system, but everyone's like, yes, but they have a day-glow forest they live in. I'm like, so do some of these languages that well, have two color I'm, words. The thing <laughs> is, with Natvi, you have to deal with biology, too, because uh-huh. they have different eyes. They may have different color perceptions. Well, it goes into all this ridiculous, over over the top craziness when you actually go and think about what colors would they have? Well, I I abide by the rule that they're really just funny humans, so I assume they're more like us than actually aliens. Giant Smurfs. Giant Smurfs, yes. So, (laughs) another one of the rules seven forty six is if you have tense at all. The distinction is going to be past and non-past. That's the simplest possible distinction. And Which I've seen plenty, English, basically. Yeah, I've seen Indeed. some conlangs that that do things, you know, differently in funky ways. Um, Seven seventy-six. If a, a language is very l- unlikely to have H, unless it also has a primary fricative, usually S. Right, so if you invent a language with an H but doesn't have an S or, or an F or something, then you've done something funky and weird. So wait, a language without any fricative? That kind of makes sense to me because H is probably a little hard to hear. And if you're not used to hearing fricatives in the first place, you might just end up dropping H very quickly. English H is really faint. Like, when I was doing a bit of Arabic, it was probably also an English bias. It was damn hard for me to hear final H. Oh, sure. Sure. See, that's one of my favorite sounds, but it is hard for a lot of English speakers to, to cope with. So, anyway, I mean, we could go on listing all these interesting things and trying to figure out what they mean. Fortunately, most resources on linguistic typology are just about collecting data and presenting statistics, they're not trying to push some funky linguistic theory, you know, whatever's come out of MIT this decade, on you. So you don't have to, I mean, people will write papers about typology and, you know, generative hoo-ha or whatever. But it's, it's a great way to see what's really possible. Um, and if you're thinking about doing a language that has vowel harmony, you might care to know that if a language has vowel harmony, then you're going to have an ah sound. Ew, no, I don't want to add that to mine. Well, it's either an ash or a eh. Oh, well, I have the two. There's a, there's, I there's have, a, like, the front A and the back A. Yeah, there's a, there's a blob okay. there. Some, sometime we just I have to do I fell into whole, it. Sometime we have to uh, do a special episode on Bianca's pet peeves. <laughs> you seem to have a lot of them. <laughs> but, well, we've yeah. been over the ash hatred before. Oh, yeah. Well, a lot of, you know. A lot of people don't like ash, but, yeah. yeah. So, I mean, there's, there's really just so much wonderful things and and frankly i view walls as a creative tool if i'm thinking oh you know it might be fun to do a quick little sketch just go look for things and 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 look at features you might not have thought about for example i almost never invent a language with reduplication i'm like oh that's too much like greek it turns out reduplication is hugely common all over the planet everywhere i was associated more with like um Pacific. Sure. 
But it's yeah, everywhere. That's what I, I think of Southeast Asia and the Pacific. Nope, it's everywhere. Well, I mean, there's plus there's you know a half dozen kinds of reduplication, but it's wow. extremely common in Native American languages to mark things like plural. Oh, that makes so much sense beyond yeah. belief. Instead of bakra, it's babakra, and that's more than one bakra. So <laughs> yeah, but of course you get then you get things like the Salish languages up in the Pacific Northwest with you know twelve different patterns of reduplication, one for the verb. 15 for the noun, whatever. Can you, can you, can you <laughs> messy? But, I mean, that's just an example of, of things like grammatical gender. Half of all the languages on this planet don't do that. Thank you. Of the half that do have grammatical gender, half of those, so 25%, only distinguish animate from inanimate. Oh. So masculine feminine is not, that is, is no. by far not the most common. That is very weird. That is your European bias. That is the Indo-European bias. And then my favorite are the ones that have, you know, like 20 genders. I don't like masculine, feminine, gender in the first place necessarily. Even though my the first language I learned was Spanish. I just think that if I'm creating a language, I'm not going to go with that. Because it just feels like a pain to arbitrarily assign that when there's other possible gender schemes that are a little bit more semantically well yeah i can see it and i can not see it (laughs) all of them have elements of arbitrariness yeah of course once you've decided to go that way then then you're stuck i was gonna do inanimate versus animate but then i felt like i was getting too many of one than the other just because of how i was assigning it or something so i just switched it to masculine feminine I have I have four different noun classes in one of my languages that they're very loosely defined, but I think uh, there's an animate and inanimate in there. There's also like a divine and such. Yeah. That turns out to be quite rare, but there are there is... I always thought that was goofy. I thought there can't possibly be a real language that has a divine gender. But, of course, there's a language in Mexico that does. <laughs> You should know better. If someone's thought of it, it exists. (laughs) I should mention that that specific language is spoken by a race of basically immortal spirits. So that might be actually more uh, relevant to them. Immortal spirit bias? (laughs) That's that's my uh, artistic uh, license showing in that language. I've seen a couple of people with, like, certain, like, not divine, well, maybe divine, but more, like, holy-type things as a specific class. Sure. Right, sorry, I didn't mean to interrupt you. So, probably these word order things, these statistical things, are the most common sort of looking at typology. Another thing people worry about is the analytic to synthetic to polysynthetic continuum, right? Are you, do you have a great deal of complex morphology that has elements that can't be can't appear separately? Or do you have, you know, some super crazy complicated thing? Uh, what's interesting is, is you don't have to have this super tight distinction between analytic and polysynthetic. A language like Navajo has mind-bogglingly complex verbs, and the noun system might as well be isolating. <laughs> Interesting. Yeah, very, 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 very little uh, little morphology goes on there, except things that you know maybe they're enclitics. But 
So there, there are things you can do to miss and match. It's just, even for people who aren't interested in producing naturalistic languages... You can still get a bunch of ideas. So many magnificent ideas can be had by thinking about these things. Yeah, absolutely. And I will link those two sites in the show sure. notes. Good. In fact, um, Will, if you can paste the wall site to the doc, I didn't bother to look it up. but Okay. Yeah. But those are very interesting things. And as we said at the start of this, these, you... You're not learning these to learn what to do and what not to do. You're le- learning these for the same reason you learn sort of aesthetic rules in art. You're learning them so at first you want to ad- go a little towards that way, but when it's so that when you break the rules, you know that you're breaking the rules and hopefully you have some reason for it, even if it's just because I like it this way better than that way. Yeah, they're more like guidelines, if I may. Um, you know, as long as you know what you're doing when you break them and you have a good reason, even if the reason is I hate it. But <laughs> that's a valid reason in my book. Oh, um, sure. You know, as long as you know that you're doing something that's a little bit funky and you have a good reason, I'm happy to have it. But. Some of these universals, or, well, yes, some of these rules exist for reasons. That's true. If you, just cognitive reasons. I've done this by accident before. I say, I'm going to have this word order, but I'm going to do the relative clauses differently. And then suddenly you realize that having a different word order in relative clauses makes it really hard to parse your sentences. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah. Right, if so... You- if, like if you go directly the opposite, especially, it, it ends up like you have to start thinking one direction and then start thinking the other direction. Ugh. Yeah, I mean some That's some right. of these some of these these things make sense and and maybe you know conlanging is kind of applied or experimental linguistics, right? We get to discover these problems on our own, and we discover why you know ninety percent of all human languages follow this rule or that rule. <laughs> Because it's hard to process the other way. You know what drives me nuts doing the opposite way? When you do possessives in English versus possessives in Spanish. Like if you do my cousin, brother's, sister's child. When you do it the opposite way, I have to like seriously stop and think about it. Because it's like nested the opposite direction. Right, you have to unwrap it. Just like, if I'm doing it all in Spanish, I'm fine. If I'm doing it all in English, I won't. But if I have to switch, I'm like... Is this? That's really interesting because the Spanish structure actually exists in English. Yeah, but it's kind of annoying in English. But translating from one to the other, yeah, yeah is a little just... confusing when you have to, you know, you have apostrophe s, apostrophe s, apostrophe s, and then you have to switch it back to something of something um, something of something something this something something this something yeah I mean it actually has the opposite thing in that it only puts genitives before the possessed noun mm-hmm. so anytime you have an of structure you have to remember to flip it around yeah I mean I only remember that because I was doing the translation thing and I had to do Spanish to Swedish which broke my mind because of 
at both now. So, <laughs> and then there was some possessive thing, and I was like, what the f-? It's all backwards. Anyway, back to the topic. Yeah. Well, I think we've uh, talked a good bit on this. Just main points are, look at these things, familiarize with some of them, browse through them, and just get a good sense of what what's more common than what, and ooh, know ooh, when ooh, you're... Ooh, 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 I forgot one thing. In addition to the things that are super common, the, 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 the German university has a list of things that appear to be extremely very, very rare. Oh, that's Give us an example. My too. favorite example is that no human language except maybe five of them have words that describe as their core meaning smells. Yeah. We always, I mean, in English and lots of other languages, we compare the smell to something else. Oh, like a flavor of smell? Yeah. Oh, that's yeah, we cool. Don't, we Isn't don't that interesting? have dedicated smell words. And it may just have something to do with, we, we rely on smell more than we think, but it's all sort of subconscious. Yeah, for humans. Well, smell gets mangled with a bunch of other senses in our perception, especially taste and smell go together so very strongly. I've seen a lot of people who make, like, sort of feral creatures, like wolfmen and stuff, that try to create vocabulary for smell. I think it's probably a little hard to do, but... I can imagine. Well, maybe not. I would... I'd probably end up doing, like, flavors of smell, which would probably also be biased by taste, but it's a nice idea. You have to figure something out, but that's a very interesting thing. We have a lot more, a lot of words for colors, a lot of words for sound. We don't have really much for smell. That's interesting. Right, so that's just another example. I mean, a lot of the the database of of rare things has to do with phonology, right? You don't expect to have implosive consonants if you don't also have adjectives, things like that. But uh, there are one or two of these just magnificent things that make me want to create a language that, you know, uses them. I'd love to talk a lot more on this, but uh, we want to move along because I want to make sure that uh, Bianca gets to talk about our featured conlang, which is Ladan. Uh, Ladan was created by Suzette Hayden Elgin. Elgin. Elgin, sorry. In response to feminist theories that human languages do, are not adequate to express the female experience. It was presented in her novel Native Tongue and includes a number of features specifically geared toward women, such as affixes related to emotional state, a, a series of evidentials that include things like wa, assumed false by a speaker because speaker distrust source. That sounds like a very stereotypical woman's thing to say. Sorry, Bianca. <laughs> To, to distinguish. And it's also noticeable, notable for being a tonal language and having... It has features of some Native American languages in it, doesn't it? Yep. Yeah. And, William, you've actually read the novels, haven't yep. you? Yep, yep. Um, and, and I once even called Suzette Hayden Elgin's um, uh, office to ask for the tapes 
that go with the uh, textbook and dictionary that came out for Laodon. So the novel Native Tongue, and there were two follow-ups, came out in the early 80s when there was a lot of anxiousness from certain science fiction and fantasy writers about changes in politics in the industrialized nations. This is the same time period that gave us The Handmaid's Tale, that gave us V for Vendetta, gave us The Watchmen. There was a lot of concern about pushback against advances in civil rights um, that had happened in the 60s and 70s. So, in some ways, her novel and even the language La Don is, is a very 80s sci-fi set piece. So there were various ideas going around about whether or not your standard language, which has existed for millennia in a male-dominated society, is capable of expressing the perceptions of women. And, and she, if, if you read her description of what was going on, she was reading various other things as well. She was reading Gertel Escherbach and, and, and a few other things. And said she was a science fiction writer and a linguist, she decided she would write a novel and invent the language to see as, as kind of an experiment. So she got a novel out of it, exploring some ideas. And then she gave herself a 10-year time to see if women would actually embrace this language. That did not happen. And so she considers this a failed experiment. But the language itself, I think, is worth seeing um, whether or not you accept the sort of Worfian assumptions in the background. It's a lot interesting those going assumptions on that those kill me. Like I read those and I was just, I was like, what the hell are you talking about? Yeah. Well, actually strong Worfianism isn't much, mm. uh, doesn't have, doesn't have a good opinion these days. And, and well, I mean, there are good things about it. And, but if you go too far down that road, it's a mess. I want to ask you, Bianca, not to hmm. sound really weird here, but being the token woman on the show, yes. did you find anything in Ladon that reflects your experience more than English, say? No. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I just felt it was so ridiculous. It was like, these are all things that we express anyway and I feel like women are better expressing themselves in English than men are most of the time anyway and like the sexism whole, yeah, <laughs> go fuck yourself um, I am highly sexist but um, what was I going to say it was like what was the marker for sources not trusted by the speaker mm-hmm. hello I do that all the time but I don't need a specific marker because I'm clever enough to know how to do that subtly. I don't need it to be marked that way. Now, now that's interesting because some women don't like the language precisely because it is so explicit. They feel that it's too exposing. So yeah, one, of, one of the things that Suzette Hayden Elgin is very concerned about is the way we use language as a tool of violence, as a tool of... I don't want to go so far as to say oppression, but, you know, bullying and browbeating and all of that stuff. Um, Verbal bullying is the realm of women. Like, using emotional-type damage is predominantly a woman thing. Um, 
it is sexist, but it's also statistically true that when women bully, it's verbal and emotional, not generally physical. I mean, it happens, but, you know, more common it is verbal and emotional. And I think that's just because we know better how to get our hooks into people that way. I think <laughs> I think she should have made the language the opposite way around to be more specific for men who can't catch on to the subtleties of I think you're an idiot please go away <laughs> see that's funny I, honestly I think I know more gay guys who have learned La Don than women <laughs> <laughs> another thing about the, the verbal abuse thing I'm gonna say this please don't label me as sexist or anything but women tend to be less physically dangerous than men. Well, that's, yeah. That's, that's a tendency that's not a rule, but... I mean, I'm certainly not a threat to anyone physically. I mean, you see me, you'd probably think I was 14. Um, but, you know, we're trickier. I feel like that's the thing. Like, you were going, women didn't like the explicitness. I think... There is a certain amount of subtlety that we want. I mean, I don't like having to say, no, I don't trust them. I prefer to imply it. Um, that's why I don't, like, I don't enjoy evidentials, because I feel like they're too over the head. I mean, I know they exist, but... What I looked at of Ladan really did seem to me like, I'm going to say exactly what I want, uh, what I'm thinking. Exactly. I don't think anybody wants to do that, men or women, all the time. Now, I think men would probably enjoy that more because they're like, you know, you say you're okay, but it's not okay. So what do you really mean? I'm like, it's okay, f*** off. <laughs> when, of course, that's not what I mean. Oh, uh, this episode is going to need more editing. <laughs> I'm sorry. Have I been cursing too much? You have okay. been cursing a lot. <laughs> I apologize. I can so, it. For me, right, so so whether or not you accept these things, it's, it's interesting to see how people respond to language. A certain kind of male becomes very hostile without even knowing almost anything at all about Laodon. They immediately become cranky. Damn so that's sort of interesting. Pardon? I don't want to hear them talking to me. Huh? <laughs> right. But uh, honestly, I, I, I think the reason I mention this particular language is because for me... It was the first time I saw an invented language so completely not Indo-European. Ah, that's true. It does have its own things going on. I wish she had glosses. I could not find glosses. Oh, sorry. Bianca, you'll be happy to know that the language I'm working on now, I've actually slowed down. And I've gone back to add some more interlinear so that you will never swear at me. Yay. <laughs> If you, you look know, at that's... my grammar. Yay. Yay. I don't know how people don't do glosses. Like, that's all I do. It's just... <laughs> just... Anyway. So, um... it, it does, I mean, it does embedding differently. It does case marking differently. There's no plural marking on nouns. Unless I you're the really subject, don't like that. Unless it's the subject of a verb, in which case the verb is marked, which is a very Native American Southwest language thing mm -hmm. to do. Since her dissertation was on Navajo, that's not a surprise. Um, and Laodan has had an effect on 
sort of other engineered languages. Lojban borrowed those evidentials that Bianca hates. Ithquil oh. also borrowed the evidentials and also her complex system of possession marking. And those two languages, I think, borrowed those evidentials for their own reason in that both of those languages are languages that want to be absolutely explicit about everything. Right. Yes. Which I don't like. I enjoy the subtlety. I think that was the one thing that like, I read other than the whole Warfian ridiculousness. But like when I was just looking at the language, I did not enjoy the explicitness. I was like, why would you ever say this? It's either going to end up making you sound like an ass or, you know, making whoever you're talking to think that they're never going to be trusted by you because if you don't trust the other person you're talking to, why would they trust you? It's just like... Oh, no, no, no. That evidential just says that whatever it is you're reporting... But if someone were reporting something to me like that, mm-hmm. that's what I'd think. Okay. Yeah, I'd be a, like, you're not yeah. a very trusting person, it's which surely, would make me not trust yeah. you. <laughs> yeah. What evidentials do, for people in the listening audience that aren't sure about that, it us- it marks a sentence as how you know the information. So this thing is coming from a, an untrusted source... That means that the entire sentence or the entire thought comes from someone that you don't trust. Somebody told this to you. (laughs) And then there's other evidentials that I experienced this personally. Others that somebody I trust told it to me. And these exist in natural languages. And probably, maybe not necessarily the exact ones that she uses, but things like someone told me... I witnessed it firsthand, that kind of thing, exist in other languages as evidentials. Yeah, I mean, her set of evidentials, I mean, this is definitely an engineered language. There are things about it that are not at all naturalistic. And Ladan has quite a few evidentials that don't match how human languages have evidentials. Um, It's probably because some of those ones, like, if you use them, just... Not pragmatically. Um, oh, what the hell is it called? Um, oh, I can't think of it now. Um, but anyway, like when you're talking to other people, I think if you use them, they would reflect very badly on you or whoever you're talking about to the extent that you wouldn't want to use them even if they were true. I mean, most natural language evidentials will distinguish personal experience, hearsay, supposition, like if I step outside my front door and I see that the sidewalk's wet, I could say it looks like it rained. I could just say it rained and then I would use that. And then, typically, if languages have more than that number of evidentials, they will start distinguishing the mode of perception. Did you see it? Did you hear it? Did you... Yeah, but I think once you start making assessments on the people around you, it gets very tricky just socially yeah the to you know pull that off yeah evidentials are all about how you learn the information but yeah her specific evidentials are kind of socially awkward they are very socially awkward i think that's what it was i think you said that better than me 
there were some interesting things, like the fact that it is tonal. But I couldn't find that much on it because it didn't. It has. Well. It also does suffix aufnahme with your it's, genitives. Once you've, uh, it's like in some Australian language, you have all of these um, possessives, but they're kind of a little bit adjective-like. So if you say something like "I touched the hand of," um, "I touched the paw of the dog," mm-hmm. the word order is going to be "paw of the dog," but then it needs to be a direct object. So the "of the dog" part will also get then a case marker smacked onto the end. <laughs> so you get you get "paw dog genitive direct object." Oh, funky! Interesting. Yeah. Right, which is very common in Australian languages and some ancient languages of the Middle East did this as well. Yeah, I think the more interesting parts of it are like the parts she took from different languages rather than the philosophy behind it. I think if you throw away that, then it's more interesting than what she started it with. You know who I thought would speak this language? The Bene Gesserit from Dune. I don't know what you're talking about. Yeah, if you didn't... Oh, yes. This explicitness, this ability to add subtlety to all sorts of both internal state and be very precise about what you're saying and how you come to know what you're saying. I could very much see them using this as an internal language right. that only they know. Right. Because, of course, their whole thing is they're maneuvering in politics, so they wouldn't actually want to use something this explicit with anybody <laughs> else. But internally, they might like it. Right. I mean, yeah. It's funny how people respond to the language. Honestly, I think some of the the vocabulary that they created that are supposed to be, you know, really good at representing the perceptions of women seems useful to me. When someone someone tells me they're pregnant, these days my first, aha, unless they've already told me that they are trying to conceive, I do not know how I'm supposed to respond. Is this a happy pregnancy? (laughs) Right? That is, that is a useful distinction, I you think. You know what? You know how I distinguish it? By their age. If they're like 25 or older, I'm like, happy pregnancy. 25 or younger, mm, not so sure. Yeah. yeah. I mean, there are other clues, but I mean, every once in a while, a little over-fussy vocabulary is useful. Yeah, I mean, it's gotten complicated. It's not, it's not a terrible idea, but it probably wouldn't work. Although, to be honest, if they're telling you and you're not, like, a great friend, it's probably a happy pregnancy. Yeah, right. I'm thinking more in the situation of friends, but, yeah. yeah. Unless oh. it's obvious to begin with, uh, but then you probably noticed it and brought it up. Unless you've been getting people into trouble. <laughs> <laughs> but, anyway... <laughs> so, even if, if people aren't interested in the, in the, the Warfian aspect or the... The experiment, which, by the way, she considers to have failed, um, there's a lot, especially agree. for a beginning conlanger. If you if you don't have much experience with languages other than Indo-European ones, this is a pretty accessible. Um, I agree. I think if she like just made a second website, renamed it something else, and just presented the same thing, she would get much more response without the initial like feminism thing. Yeah. I think there would be a lot more interest. Well, and there's well, good grammatical materials and good learning materials, as you would expect for um, a professional linguist conlanger. Yeah. yeah. 
Yeah. I mean, she clearly knows what she's doing for some things, and some things it's like she tried a little too hard. Well, we're going to wrap up here with um, our feedback, because Bianca's going to have to leave pretty soon. Mm-hmm. And so I'm going to... Feedback, we have a comment on episode number three. I want to mention, at the time of this recording, only we're only up to episode three actually published. We have a buffer on this, so when you send in things, you can expect a couple weeks lag time at least before you hear back from us. But I thought this was interesting. Uh, I'll post the the uh, or I will link back to the comment in the show notes because it's a little long, but basically he was going over, this is what's his name, Peter he was talking a lot about our judgments of different conlangs on how we were considering things good or bad, and he was thinking, he was talking about like, how generally like a sketch is found as lesser value because it seems like uh, less work was put into it and some other things he just has some very good thoughts on it and I'll link back to that yeah I think he made a good point there are some languages that have had so much work in them that that, that's part of of what one has to be impressed about like Alursa is not a language I could ever use probably but the monumental effort that has gone into it makes it interesting in itself we should put that one on our list we should yeah. add it I've never heard of it I mean I I also think like there's some languages which aesthetically or um, philosophy wise not too interested even like Ladon that we just talked about don't really care for the way it sounds don't really care for the aesthetic aesthetics or philosophy but I do appreciate the amount of clearly effort and knowledge that's gone into it. I can tell that clearly she knows what she's doing, like I said, and, you know, I think if she presented it differently, she would get a much better response. Yeah. There's a lot of ways to to put value on a conlang, but, you know, ultimately it probably comes down to, unless they're a terrible noob lang, it usually will just come down to people's individual preferences. That's what we yeah. came up with in that episode. And uh, the amount of work into it figures in for me, but I understand that not everybody has time to construct a complete language. Yeah, so. and I mean, I think I'm the most guilty one here of this going, no, I don't like that. And I mean, yeah, I don't like it. It's not to my taste. But that doesn't mean I think it's bad. Yeah. I just... Whenever do you Bianca know what I'm getting says, at? Whenever Bianca says, I don't like this, it's her opinion. So don't get too uh, and it's a, sad it's an that. aesthetic opinion as well. I mean, aesthetically, I might not like it. That doesn't mean there aren't good things going into it. You haven't put the effort. It doesn't mean, you know, it's not well-constructed. Although sometimes it could be. <laughs> yeah, some of your things are legitimate, but some of these things are just a, a, it's aesthetic. Most of the time it's going to be aesthetic, because when we pick a, 
language, it's usually going to be one that's more thorough, more thought out, you know. Yeah, we don't pick new blanks to feature. We should one day. No, that would be cruel. <laughs> that would be mean. That would be... We're already mean enough to our to languages and being honest about what we don't like about them. If we put a somebody's terrible noob lang or joke lang up, would be like, yeah, let's just stop talking about this. Yeah, well, I would be. I'm brutal with my own languages. If if they do not do what I want, then out they go. I love my languages. I help them grow. Mm-hmm. But I still, I still get annoyed with things. But um, yeah. What else was there to say about this? I don't think we need anything more. We need to wrap up anyway. But yeah. I thought. Uh, but thank you, Peter, for your email, or your your comment. Sorry. And I hope we keep getting those coming in because that's. I really like to talk about what people people's reaction to our stuff. This is a community. This podcast is a community effort, and I I really want to have more feedback from Conlang community about what they want us to talk about and what their reactions are to what we did talk about. Indeed, I also like hearing back about anything. I mean, we don't produce this into a vacuum. I mean, if no one was watching it or listening to it, I don't think I'd continue doing this. Yeah. Even the small small viewership we have, I like it. I, I, I wouldn't produce a podcast if I didn't think somebody would listen to it. That's my whole thing about it. But anyway, that's, uh, that's it for us, and we'll see you next time. Bye. Ta. See ya. Thank you for listening to Conlangery. You can find all our episodes and show notes, as well as subscribe to our iTunes or RSS feeds through conlangery.conlang.org. You can also like our Facebook page or follow at Conlangery on Twitter. If you would like to contact us with corrections, comments, questions, or suggestions, or even suggest your own conlang as a feature, please email conlangery at gmail.com or call into our new voicemail line 304-873-6281. We also have a handy suggestions form on our site. Our theme music was created by Xander Vidaeus. <laughs>